What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I have been in Bitcoin for almost 10 years. I have an economics and business background as well as a military career. So I have a unique perspective, a unique outlook. And if you listen to this whole episode today, you'll get a taste of that unique outlook. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. All right, guys. Good morning. Hope you are all doing well. Ansel Lindner, Bitcoin and Markets. This will be probably the first live stream of the day. We'll see. It is the November CPI data release this morning. It's coming up in about six minutes. So I'd like to log in here and go live just a few minutes early to get a live reaction about CPI. The consensus view right now, the consensus forecast is uh, expecting 7.4% year over year and 0.46, I think, 46%. Let me look up on inflation now, cast, refreshing. So the... Cleveland Fed is expecting 7.49% year-on-year and 0.47% month-over-month. If anything comes in below that, of course, it is going to be a huge day in the markets. Bitcoin already surged over the last 24 hours, 300 bucks, so it's up to 17500 which looks really good on the chart. Let me post that image. I'm going to post the daily and the hourly. So this is in Telegram, guys. So if you're listening on Twitter Spaces, welcome. This is a Telegram live stream that I simulcast onto Spaces. And I can't listen to Spaces at the same time that I'm listening to my Telegram and stuff. So uh, at the end here, I might bring on, uh, open the mic up over on Telegram. That's what I usually do uh, on these live streams at the end. Uh, But I can take questions from... Telegram, just not Twitter spaces. And that link is t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. If you want to jump over there, we're trying to get up to 500 subs. I think we're just under 300 right now. So check it out. Okay. Hourly chart. I was going to grab. There's going to be lots of volatility. There has been traditionally lots of volatility on CPI and FOMC. And this is just back to back. So this week is going to be very volatile. On yesterday's live stream, I did say, hey, the what I'm expecting is an undershoot, so the uh, CPI to come in below the forecast, and I expect there to be a 50 basis point hike tomorrow. Um, if that's the case, that would not only be inflation continuing to accelerate downward, quote unquote inflation, right? It's CPI to continue accelerating downward, and then the Fed pivoting as well, that is going to be a huge signal to the market. Uh, to rally both Bitcoin and stocks. So 
Uh, and we're seeing rates falling, right? So there is, uh, just like in 2022, when both stocks and bonds have had a horrible year and Bitcoin, I think 2023, we're going to see all three of those asset classes, stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin rally pretty significantly. And of course, Bitcoin always has the most upside to rally because it is the most fixed supply, is the most least owned in people's portfolios, even though, you know, Bitcoin is getting out there. I think, what are the most recent numbers for um, Americans that own Bitcoin? I think it's like three to 5% or something. I saw Canadians was much higher up there around 10%, I think. Uh, Globally, we're at, they estimate about 300 million people owning Bitcoin. So there's a lot of room for adoption in Bitcoin. That's why Bitcoin as an asset class has the most room to go up. So if 2023 is going to be hugely positive for stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin, then you know, Bitcoin has the largest room to move and it's going to be lumped in there. And people are going to be like, oh, it survived another Bitcoin winter. It survived all this deleveraging going on with FTX and, and all of that. So Bitcoin is going to come out of this looking very, very good. Uh, the minute it breaks 19,000, gets back towards that 20,000 mark where the FTX, FTX debacle hit, um, it's going to look like Bitcoin has made it. Now that is minus any other blow up. I have not been following Binance. I've seen that um, Dylan LeClaire has been kind of calling them out a little bit. I'm fairly neutral on whether Binance is solvent, but I do think that they, um, I lean towards them being solvent. And so minus them blowing up, Bitcoin is going to go up from here through 2023. All right. Just to recap, we have about a minute left before the CPI. October numbers were 0.4% month on month, 7.7% year over year. If you're new to my content, year over year is kind of worthless because, you know, it's like taking the average, your average speed after you've hit a brick wall. Okay. It takes a long time for your average speed to catch up to your absolute speed, which is zero. Okay, and that is kind of what has happened to CPI is it stopped. I think it was July was uh, 0% month over month, August 0.1%, September 0.4, and October 0.4. And I think this today will come in either 0.2 or 0.3, and that is a major deceleration. I'll have to figure out how you know when you annualize that what it comes out to but it comes out to, i think between two and three percent uh if you annualize those five months since the brick wall in july so it's not the 7.7 that's that's ridiculous okay 8 30 here we go oh my goodness cpi all items rises 0.1 percent in november Guys, oh my God, Bitcoin's already at 17,900. It jumped 400 points since we've been talking just now. Oh my goodness. Let's look at the markets here. Oh my goodness. Bitcoin is rallying hardcore. It hit that 18,100 and and bounced down. Let's see how it goes here in the next couple seconds. Wow, 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 wow. That is a huge miss, guys. Huge miss. Again, expectations 0.4. What was it? 0.47%. 
month over month. And it was 0.1%. Huge, huge miss to the downside. Let's take a look at stocks. I'm posting all of these charts into Telegram. So if you guys are listening on Twitter spaces, welcome Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. I do these live streams pretty regularly. Um, but on Telegram is kind of the home base. So I open up the mic usually at the end of these streams. I also post all the charts and links and stuff that I'm talking about during these in Telegram, not on Twitter. So uh, go to Telegram at t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets. Uh, so this will still be pre-market open. Uh, and this is delayed. So, oh man, this is delayed by 15 minutes. I think this uh, futures, I don't know where to get a non-delayed. <laughs> uh, so we'll have to wait and see, but Bitcoin is shooting higher. Let's take a look at like oil prices and stuff. Oil sitting at 74, no biggie. Uh, the 10 year, holy crap, guys. The 10 year is telling you the Fed is going to pivot. Let's put this in here right now into Telegram. Huge drop. Huge, huge drop down to 3.43% right now. And remember, the bottom of the Fed funds range is 3.75. 3.75. And the price right now, or the yield on the 10-year right now, is 3.43. Huge, huge discrepancy here. And the Fed is supposed to tomorrow raise another 50 basis points. So it's going to go up. The bottom of the Fed funds range is going to be 425 and the 10 years is going to be sitting at 3.4. Give me a break. I, the, the way this is coming out right now, I don't know if the Fed is going to raise 50 basis points. I think they're going to raise 25 basis points. But let's anyway, let's get into the CPI report. I will post the link to what I'm reading here in Telegram so you guys can pull it up. It's just the BLS website. Um, let's see, bls.gov. And I think you go to CPI and then you'll see the link on that front page. But this has a different URL for the month here. Wow, big, big number on CPI, guys. Okay, the consumer price index for all urban consumers rose 0.1% in November on a seasonally adjusted basis after increasing 0.4% in October. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported today. Over the last 12 months, the all items index increased 7.1% before seasonal adjustment. Okay, 7.1%. So that's what... We're looking at annual, and remember though, annual is not that important after you hit the brick wall, because annual is an average, or it's an annualized, it's not really an average, but it's like, you can think of it like that, and we have hit a brick wall, so it's going to take a long time for that year over year to to catch down to what we're doing here, and again, a 0.1 month over month, oh my gosh, guys, that's basically 0%, you know, or that's a 1%. If you just annualize this month, it's 1.2%, right? So that is what the CPI came in at. That's what you should think of. Annualized month over month or even annualized quarter uh, would be a good way to do it too. So, all right, let's continue with this. The index for shelter was by far the largest contributor to the monthly all items increase, more than offsetting decreases in energy indexes. The food index increased 0.5% over the month, with the food at home index also rising 0.5%. The energy index decreased 1.6% over the month, as the gasoline index, the natural gas index, and the electricity index all declined. The index for all items less food and energy rose 0.2% in November. So that's the core. 
rose 0.2% in November. Wow, wow. That's a very low number as well. After rising 0.3% in October, the indexes for shelter, communication, recreation, motor vehicle insurance, education, and apparel were among those that increased over the month. Indexes which declined in November include used cars once again. And remember, used cars, so that provided a lot of the impetus on the way up. That led the, that was a leading indicator because of the chip shortage and new cars not being able to be produced as quickly, plus the supply chains, obviously, for new cars. There's so many parts in these new cars that they, you know, the supply chains really hit them badly. So the used car prices, that led this whole CPI up. And now the used car prices, time and time again, are leading on the way down. So uh, the indexes that declined in November include the used cars and trucks, medical care, and airfares. The all items index increased uh, 7.1% for the 12 months ending November. This was the smallest 12-month increase since the period ended December ending December 2021. The all items less food and energy index rose 6.0%, so that's core, over the last 12 months. The energy index increased 13.1% for the 12 months ending November, and the food index increased 10.6% over the last year. All of these increases were smaller than the period ending in October. All right, now I'm going to take a screenshot of the table, send it over to you guys. So they said that the biggest contributor here was shelter. And of course, that's what I've been talking about for a long time. Shelter is a lagging indicator. We shouldn't expect shelter to to move quickly because, you know, they deal with new leases and owner equivalent rent. So think about this. Like if you are a seller of a house and you put your house up maybe three months ago and it's not selling, now you're in a stalemate with the buyers. Are you going to lower the price of your house? Well, maybe, but you want to get this certain thing and you don't need to sell right now. So you're going to keep the price where it is and hope the market comes back to you, right? Um, so, and when they ask you owner's equivalent rent, they'll be like, you know, what do you expect this house to be rented for? And they would tell you the price, like the uh, rental equivalent of their asking price. They're going to be hesitant to drop their owner's equivalent rent. Also, with new leases, they are obviously only signed once a year, so they already have baked in the cake roughly a 12-month lag. Uh, but then you have to add in things like the rent moratorium that they put on during COVID and stuff, and that's going to push people back even further, and those type of effects from stimulus. And then you get a bigger lag effect. I mean, it could be 18 months at this point in the shelter component. But let's take a look at what the shelter component did this month. So it is shelter. It did decelerate to 0.6% month over month. So September. So let me go back. August and September, 0.7%. October, 0.8%. And now we're starting to see that deceleration finally in shelter down to 0.6%. And these are all month over month numbers. So once that shelter component comes down, we're going to see the CPI come way down, way down, and very, very quickly. 
I mean, energy, the energy index, they said, or energy component dropped. Let me see some of these. So energy as a larger index, you know, that has energy commodities, gasoline, fuel oil, energy services, electricity, and utilities, that is all under this energy index. And the entire energy index declined 1.6%. Energy commodities that include gasoline and fuel oil, like diesel, uh, gasoline decreased 0.2%, and diesel only increased 1.7%. Energy services as a component, negative 1.1%. So these are big numbers here, uh, especially on the energy side, because, you know, energy is baked into everything, right? So, okay. What else we have? Let's look, take a look at the FedWatch tool and see what is going on. We have five more minutes till this delay is up and we can see what's going on with the stocks. So 4.25% to five, sorry, yeah, 425 to 4.5%. That is a 50 basis point hike. And that is now at 89%, almost locked in for the rate hike tomorrow. But again, that puts the lower range, the lower end of this Fed funds range at 4.25%. And the 10 years at 3.5 right now, 3.48. It's it's come up a little bit from this initial reaction. We'll see sometimes these initial reactions do get completely reversed. Bitcoin is still sitting at 17,900, looking pretty good, looking pretty strong. It has weathered the storm of the SBF getting arrested. Well, first F, uh, FTX blowing up. Now Sam Bankman getting arrested. So Bitcoin has kind of traversed this whole timeline or what, what word am I looking for? This whole narrative from blow up to arrest bitcoin has weathered that and really is roughly in the same part of the chart okay yes it is down and there has been chart damage to bitcoin uh, but it's relatively stable and it's showed extreme strength guys it's dealt now with direct fud from the ecb the eu all the big new york times washington post uh, wall street journal all these outlets financial times they've all posted negative FUD stories about Bitcoin, as well as this the legitimate FTX blowing up. And Bitcoin is still soldiering on. It's still holding on here. I mean, it's coming into a very important part of the chart where it's running into resistance, but uh, we'll see how this goes. All right, once again, CPI came in way below consensus, 0.1% month over month. Big, big announcement. All right, guys, uh, this will be short and sweet. I'm going to open up the mic here on Telegram if you want to jump in and say something. Let's try to keep it. Uh, I mean, you can change the topic really to anything, but let's try to keep it onto Bitcoin and macro. Um, so if you have something, go ahead and raise your hand over there in Telegram. While we're waiting for that, um, guys on Twitter Spaces, welcome. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. Check out t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets. That is the telegram aj bringing you in what's up aj hi Ansel. uh just short what on the upside for bitcoin what in your opinion what are the levels to be to watch in the in the chart all right so aj asked what are the levels in the chart for bitcoin uh to be watching 
I think from right here, 18,000 to 19,000, that is the heaviest resistance. If we break 19,000 on, you know, that is, is going to be game on when it breaks 19,000, in my opinion. Uh, we might have, obviously, the way it always works, you break out and you back test that that previous resistance now turns support or whatever. So we could see like breaking 19,000, hitting 20, coming back to 19, testing that, and then back up, something like that. Now on the downside, it's the new lows. So I would put, you could put a stop loss at, at the low. But really, I look at what Bitcoin has survived in the last uh, since June, since the June low with Celsius and Terra, Luna or whatever it's called, uh, it survived a lot. And this FTX is one of the biggest scandals to hit anything in macro in you know many, many years. And Bitcoin dropped barely under support and you know it's recovering right now. So geez, it, it has been extremely strong. I don't see how there is going to be a ton of more sellers coming in here. I don't know where they would come from. The miners have sold uh, all of this. Most of the largest Ponzi's have exploded and had to liquidate their reserves and things. So I don't see where there is a lot of selling. So I, on the downside, I, yeah, I would just say a new low is where I would put a stop loss. And then uh, 19,000, once it breaks 19,000, I think it's party on. Great. Thanks. Uh, I, I don't trade, but I like to time my buys. But when I bought yeah. it, uh, I don't sell. So, uh, also, I just wanted to to tell me, just to um, tell you, you should drop that link in the in the in the Telegram group. There, David Bailey had a tweet today or yesterday about the state of Bitcoin now compared to when it was at seventeen thousand five years ago, and it's like you said, well, it's pretty staggering, really, what's happening and what's happened, and we're still at the same price. So bullish as fuck. Awesome. Okay, I'll look Thanks. for that. Yep. Thank you. Uh, to, uh, t- spaces, he said, I need to look for the David Bailey tweet about the state of Bitcoin from last time it was at 17,000 to today, or the first time, I guess, it was at 17,000 to today. And it's, it's pretty staggering the changes that have been made. So I'll check that out. I'll post that. I'll retweet it and I'll post it in Telegram as well. Um, okay. Anybody else on Telegram? I did release yesterday's live stream on all podcast apps. I'm kind of behind posting things onto Rumble and Odyssey because it just takes a few extra steps and I don't get to it every single day. So I'm behind on that. But uh, check out the podcast app. Make sure you're subscribed. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to the free newsletter over on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. I missed the Monday uh, again, but it will come out this week at some point. Um, I do have FedWatch that is on Thursday now at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time is the new time for FedWatch. So big week, big reaction to all of this stuff. At that point, I'll have time to, you know, absorb what's going on with CPI, what's going on with the Fed funds uh, rate and policy decisions and have a pretty big show on Thursday. So check that out. Set set your timer or your, your alarms for 1230 Eastern on Thursdays. That's FedWatch. That's on the Bitcoin Magazine YouTube channel and Rumble channels. All right, so CPI, once again, 0.1% month over month. Huge, huge underperformance on the CPI, which is extremely bullish. Let's take a look. That delay should be over for the S&P 500. So let's take a look at what we got going on pre-market. 
And it is also a pretty big day here or pretty big candle. I'll post that as well really quick into Telegram. Okay, so that's it. Let's take a look at what's the dollar real quick. Oh, the dollar is falling also, 103. So we'll see. If this continues to fall, I might have to reevaluate my position on the dollar about this being range-bound. But, I mean, it just is passing the 2016 high of 103 spot 8. So we'll see. We'll see where this bottoms. But I don't expect the dollar to really collapse here. There's a few different mechanisms that are keeping it range bound. And maybe I'll go into that uh, on the next live stream a little bit later today, but I'm going to wrap it there guys. So thanks for joining me. Ansel Leonard, Bitcoin to markets, Bitcoin to markets.com. And I'll see you guys later today. Bye. What is up everybody? Welcome back to another live stream. My name is Ansel Leonard. This is Bitcoin to markets. Hope you're having a good day. We are hitting here stream number two. So we had a quick live stream this morning that was a live reaction to the CPI. It's kind of fun to do those because <laughs> I think, uh, especially the last couple, you know, have big been big misses to the downside. And so it's, a, it's an emotional reaction. I think it, it is uh, entertaining for people. So Thank you for joining me this morning. If you did, thank you for joining right now. Uh, today's topics, I'm going to be discussing some counterintuitive reactions. So who was that that brought that up? Was it Ryan? Let me scroll up here and see in Telegram. It was, uh, yeah, Ryan Breen brought this up during the live stream this morning as a you know reaction to one of the charts, the Bitcoin chart that I posted. So we're going to go over some counterintuitive, the counterintuitive nature of the reactions that we see out there and why people don't, you know, it doesn't make any sense for inflation to be going up, but, or inflation to be coming down, quote unquote inflation, but Bitcoin to be going up. It seems completely opposite, uh, as well as the dollar, right? So when CPI is underperforming, the dollar is dropping. That also seems to be counterintuitive. Just everything is going the opposite way of what you would think. And so we're going to discuss that uh, a little bit today. Before I get started here, though, uh, guys, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you want to support me monetarily, you can go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com and sign up to become a paid member. I'm really trying to push that um, to get my numbers up. And don't forget FedWatch, 1230 Eastern on Thursday, that's coming up. So that's my other gig that I do here in the space. So if you like what I'm talking about here, FedWatch is similar, but more central bank heavy. Make sure you guys check that out and you can subscribe, watch live, or you can subscribe to the FedWatch podcast as well. Just search FedWatch Bitcoin in any podcast app, you'll find it. So, okay, let's take a look at some charts that I just posted because we can see exactly what the reaction has been from the market. First one up is Bitcoin going up there to $18,100. Now it's down to $17,000, approximately $800. Um, big, big pump here. And right into the he the like heart of the resistance of, of the price, I've been talking about the $18,000 to $19,000 range as being the big 
resistance to price and it really it just popped right there and has come back a little bit but it's showing itself pretty strong S&P 5 or oh no next one is the dollar and the dollar is down 103 spot 7 that is slightly below the 2016 high this would be a good logical place to bounce on the chart and enter the range but uh, my call for the range has you know it's being delayed here by this we'll see what happens I mean, it makes sense for the dollar to be weakening right now because I believe that the acute phase of the dollar crunch is over. So the dollar will consolidate from that. But long term, it just depends where it bounces. Um, Anything above, say, I will get worried with my thesis around 102, 101. You know, if it doesn't bounce around there, then it starts to get concerning. But this is uh, still within, I guess, my framework if we bounce around the, this area. So, uh, of course, I'm keeping an eye on that constantly. And this will be, I mean, it's it's possible as well that the dollar does go down to 95 and then bounces back higher into back into the range. Uh, that wouldn't be crazy, but uh, I would not expect that type of behavior, at least looking back at the history of the dollar. You know, the dollar doesn't have a lot of volatility. We shouldn't expect the dollar to have a lot of volatility. So it takes a lot to move the dollar in different places or, uh, you know, up or down into different ranges. And so uh, I don't expect it to be a volatile move. I expect the dollar to, you know, meander its way into this range. So, all right, let's next chart is oil pumping a little bit here, $75 a barrel. I did see a tweet about the strategic petroleum reserve and how it drew down 7 point or 4.7 million barrels last week over the last week that's about 600,000 barrels a day that is pretty significant there's still over oh close to 400 million barrels in the strategic petroleum reserve and you know my opinion is that that is less strategic than it once was since we now we have shale oil which we didn't in the 80s when that was first you know the last time we're at these levels was the early 80s for the strategic petroleum reserve and our strategy has changed dramatically since then so it it means something different also um you know the price of oil has really fit into my expectations over the last, well, basically since um, uh, going back into COVID. I mean, I, I didn't think it would get quite as high, but it makes sense because it the of the Russian and Ukrainian conflict and all the sanctions put on. Uh, I didn't think there would be as many sanctions because I didn't think the Europe would be that masochistic and destroy their own economies, which they have done. Uh, in order to just put some sanctions onto Russia in a battle, in a war that they know they're going to lose eventually. So I didn't think that was going to happen. Taking that into consideration, oil has acted as I expected. Okay, uh, next one is S&P 500. Had a huge gap up. This is one of those counterintuitive things here because uh, if CPI is coming down and that means that you know impending recession is pulling down demand, and why would stocks be rallying here? And we're going to talk about this. 
but it did um, gap up over 4,000 on the S&P 500. It's coming down a little bit now, but it did make a new swing high. So very, very interesting. The other big one that I watch is the 10-year, the U.S. 10-year, and it crashed. I mean, instantaneously, it dropped like 15 basis points uh, when the CPI came out. So it, it was up there around 360, and it dropped all the way down to 343, almost in one go. That's It's very interesting to see what what is going to happen with the Fed tomorrow. Anyway, that's what I'm looking at for that. Is that my last chart? I think so. Let's talk about some of this counterintuitive stuff. So, like I said, Ryan Breen, he made a comment this morning and he said, "It's still amazing to me that bad economic fall uh, bad economic news, falling demand, impending recession results in stocks exploding upward. Just goes to show you how perverse the incentives are these days." My response is, it's counterintuitive, but that's how it works. Falling demand and impending recession are harbingers of deflationary pressure. Deflationary pressure in a credit-based system pushes credit creation into asset price inflation. So if you're, uh, um, if you're a regular listener, you will know that my interpretation of asset price inflation is that during these deflationary pressure times, in, in times where you have falling demand and impending recession, credit creation will get funneled into certain assets, certain more safe assets or less risky. It'll get cre- uh, funneled to more credit-worthy market participants. And th- those are the biggest companies that get them, they're the most credit-worthy. And that is the source of asset price inflation. So margin, you know, um, hedge funds or whoever's getting this credit to buy stocks. It's a better risk to lend money to a big company to buy back their stock or to a big hedge fund that is going in and buying fangs, you know, buying the big guys, because that's where the money gets funneled during these times and they go up in price. Also, housing is less, uh, less risky because you can always repo the house, you know, and sell that, sell that house off. The house is the collateral for the loan. Um, Main street loses, main street loses. So this is real asset price inflation, but it's due to deflationary pressures due to a falling of demand and impending recession. Um, Also, I say the hawkish narrative of the fed has pushed those very prices into oversold territory. So the Fed, you know, through their narrative management, they're pushing this. They have uh, tried to scare people away from stocks. They've tried to uh, push the prices into these oversold territories. And now when they're going to switch or pivot from hawkish to more dovish, that oversold condition will get relieved. And that means that they have to go up in price. Just look at the last 2022 was like the worst year combined for stocks and bonds. Not quite for Bitcoin, but you know, Bitcoin shared in that bad year in 2023, when everything switches, they're going to have a very good year. I think 2023 is going to be a very good year for the market. I'm not buying this 
I'm not buying the recession because if you're talking about, I'm talking about asset prices. I'm not talking about like GDP and stuff. I mean, GDP can go down to 1% and, or zero even, and asset prices can still go higher because of the way this credit-based system works. Everything is leading back to what I have said for a long time is that we're going back to a post-GFC normal, low growth, low inflation. And what inflation is created is funneled to asset prices. All right. Um, So that kind of explains, or that's how I would kind of explain this counterintuitive behavior in the market after CPI was released. Okay, let's go to another topic here. There was a tweet that I thought was amazing, and you guys seem to like it over here on Telegram as well. It was by Ben the Carmen. I guess that's how you say it. Carmen is his name on Twitter. And he's responding to Mr. Hoddle talking about how nobody can describe blockchain. Oh no, what makes a blockchain secure is what Mr. Hoddle was talking about. And Carmen says, the only people who understand proof of work are Bitcoiners, because if you did, you'd be a Bitcoiner. And that's, I thought that struck me as like eloquent and (laughs) accurate, you know, like what's that when you can describe something very concisely, you know, that is the science, the more concise that you can describe something, the more likely that it's true. There's something like that. So I thought this was very concise and very true, and you guys seem to agree. All right, what is the next thing? All right, next thing is this, the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler. He is being exposed as pretty much a fraud out there. You know, he's met with SBF more than any other person in the Bitcoin space about regulation specifically. And it's also coming out that they knew It was a scam. FTX was a scam from the beginning, yet Gary Gensler still met with him multiple times. Of course, um, all of the political donations and stuff. So maybe it's not that, maybe, I don't know. I wasn't in the room, okay? And people are drawing connections between MIT, Gary Gensler, um, this Caroline Ellison, is that her name? Her father worked with Gary Gensler at MIT. So there's some nepotism. There's some connections here, family connections. Uh, There's also, you know, the big time political donations to Democrats and things. And Gary Gensler is serving under Democrat president. I don't know what his personal politics are. But the way I have always read Gary Gensler is that he loves Satoshi. He thinks Satoshi is the greatest. He's always spoken out against the scams. He's always spoken out against uh, things like Ethereum being a commodity, right? Saying most of these things, all of these things other than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only thing he's ever said is is like a commodity. So um, that's how I kind of read it. I guess maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. And the same way I give Jack Dorsey the benefit of the doubt, because a lot of people are demonizing Jack Dorsey especially those in the alternative news space, alternative media, even alternative financial press, the people that I listen to when they talk about Elon Musk and Dorsey, they always place Dorsey in with the worst of the worst people. Like he is actually the one that was taking away people's freedom of speech and stuff. And I think that Dorsey is just kind of a weak personality. You know, he wants to go and meditate he doesn't want to start drama with powerful politicians. 
and powerful FBI agents. He doesn't want to bring the hammer down on himself or on his company. Anyway, I put Gary Gensler perhaps in that same bucket is how I view Jack Dorsey. As Gary Gensler, he looks, you know, kind of frail and not the most masculine person that would go out there and really take charge of things. Maybe he's just riding the wave and he is being swept up in this. I don't know. But this is a quote from him this morning. And Neil Jacobs, he uh, tweeted this out. Um, quote, the alleged fraud committed by Mr. Bankman-Fried is a clarion call for crypto platforms that they need to come into compliance with our laws. So it looks like they could be coming after these crypto platforms. That would include Binance. There's some shady stuff happening with Binance. I just said this morning that I'm leaning towards saying they're solvent, but man, it really... I'm getting closer and closer to a toss-up um, with this Binance. It could be, they could also be in big trouble. So Gary Gensler is going after these people, FTX, Binance, perhaps Coinbase. I mean, Coinbase has been selling scams, unregistered securities for a very long time. That is the exact business model that Brian Armstrong went after was selling unregistered securities. And it didn't matter how many times Bitcoiners said, you're ruining Coinbase. You're ruining your reputation. This is not going to end well for you. Don't do this. It's not worth the short-term profits. Over and over and over. Hey, Brian Armstrong, incorporate Lightning Network. Anything for Bitcoin. Do anything for Bitcoin. No? You're going to sell your scams? That's that is pretty much the history there with um, with Brian Armstrong and that Fred. There was a co-founder, Fred Eshram or F Ephraim, something like this. Um, he left a couple years ago, and I don't know if he got fed up with the selling the scams. Maybe he saw the writing on the wall of this space. But Brian Armstrong kept going, kept pushing forward. I've always seen him, uh, Brian Armstrong, also as a weak individual, though. You know, he's always been trying to be one of the Silicon Valley VCs. He's tried to get in with the Chamaths, you know, in with the Andreessen Horowitzes of the world. So Brian Armstrong has this inferiority complex that I think has put him down the wrong road. But anyway, my reaction to this initial tweet here by Neil Jacobs was to say, could we possibly see? a rotation out of all coins and into Bitcoin. I think that's possible. I think that's possible. And if there's other problems, let's say USDC has some sort of problem or Tether has some sort of problem, where are people going to go? Yeah, they could go to regular dollars, sure. But a lot of that will come into Bitcoin. So we could see a great rotation out of altcoins and maybe stable coins. I don't know. I'm not a... Uh, fudster on the stable coins. I don't really care too much about them, to be honest with you. I think they're solving a problem. So, and we, what other stuff have we seen recently? So another thing out of the big final boss, I guess you would call it final boss Ponzi, which is Ethereum. We've seen a couple things. So Paxful, I think they have 11 million users or something globally. I'm not sure, but they're, they're a fairly big uh, 
Bitcoin focused company, but they did offer Ethereum and now they are going to stop offering Ethereum services. Um, they are still going to use Ethereum for Tether though, apparently. So for some of the stable coins and things, but I don't think they're going to have Ether. I could be wrong on that, but that was a big news item that just came out over the last 24 hours. Also, from what I've heard is people involved with Uniswap, uh, pretty much the last, I guess, use case for Ethereum that's still standing. I mean, they don't have much to swap anymore these days, but uh, Uniswap is still still there. And they have been lobbying the developers, Ethereum developers, to you know give them a free pass on some of these fees. They burn the fees. The fees can go up. The fees can be very expensive. And Uniswap wants to get a special dispensation for their own use case, I guess. So they can capture, they can capture that market. I think it might be going into the next Ethereum hard fork. That is some of the rumors that I've seen. So not only is Ethereum captured by OFAC compliant stakers and staking is makes rich people richer and poor people poorer, you know, hurting the distribution of the token. And all of these Ponzi's on top of Ethereum have collapsed and they've gone and taken away their source of inflation that pumped up and inflated their ecosystem in the first place, the Ether inflation. Now they're going to get captured by Uniswap as well. I mean, these things continue to add up add up and add up on the altcoin side. Now, Gary Gensler is going to go after these crypto platforms. So we could see a major rotation out of altcoins. I mean, what's the market cap of Ethereum? Like 50 billion or something like that? Imagine that fleeing into Bitcoin. Be pretty crazy. All right. Uh, what else? What other news items do we have here that I posted over the last couple days, couple hours, whatever. I have not looked too much into it, but the Syrian, not the Syrian, the Serbian conflict uh, with Kosovo and Albanians and stuff, that is heating up. So I'm watching that. One thing that, you know, this just adds to the ring of fire that we'll continue to see around the Eurasian continent. And even in places like Brazil, you know, where they, I don't even know if that election is, uh, finalized yet but there's some sort of civil war brewing down there too so all of these things are heating up around the world oh and let me get into one more thing so mitch he has a very good comment here on one of the posts that i posted yesterday about the imf okay so santiago capital that's brent johnson you know he, he's a big u.s dollar advocate that it's going to be a there's going to be a strong dollar. He is the progenitor of the milkshake theory, and he has a lot of realist type of tendencies. And I'm getting more and more realist type tendencies here. Part of this milkshake theory is that you have to take out dollar denominated debt, and then that just sucks the value out of emerging markets. Right? It's a the U.S. will suck the dollar milkshake and take all the value out into the dollar. Uh, but this Henry Schaffer, Schaefer says, their house is already on fire. How much worse can it get? Like insolvent companies? 
Sometimes it's better to just declare bankruptcy. Also, for most people living in these countries, the ones getting sucked dry by their authoritarian governments, it's all upside to default. So if they default, it's better for them because they you know, obviously they won't have the debt burden. That's what that's what these people think. Um, Gonzi responded and he said, as someone who was born in an emerging market, defaulting is the last thing you want. You lose profits from your only valuable assets. So you can't fund your programs and then need loans that you can't get. So if you default, you can't get new loans because, of course, you're a bad credit risk. You just defaulted, dude. Oh, and then he says that this is when bad actors and militias step in and cause havoc. So there's no way out. Okay, there's no way out. And um, so I responded in the telegram and I said that where he said, how much worse can it get? I said, it's arguments like this that can only come from a comfy Westerner and a good intentioned Westerner to boot. So not only he is, I think, naive, but he's at least well-intentioned. He thinks that there could be some hope for these, these places. And there is maybe long-term, but there, there's no easy out. It's not like, oh yeah, of course, it's just evil people. Just stop being evil, guys. It's not that easy, okay? There, there's major, major structural, societal, geopolitical problems that are not solvable, really. You know, maybe in 50 years, there's some new invention. Like I just saw this, there's something about some fusion reactor breakthrough. I don't think that's coming anytime soon, but let's say it does. I mean, that kind of breakthrough of unlimited free energy, basically, could really change these people's lives, okay? Yes, that's true. That's a great answer. But that's not here. That's not now. Maybe in the future, technology changes and brings these people up. So anyway, let's continue with what I responded. Uh, it can get much worse as the response lays out from Gandhi's that I read out. There is a reason the IMF requires things of countries. And China doesn't. I've covered this before. China didn't require reform guarantees. And now their whole belt and road is falling apart due to non-payment. So we talked about this in Africa. We've talked about this in Pakistan. Of course, Sri Lanka famously had to default. And China tried to seize their port. And I don't know if that even came about. But, you know, the belt and road is falling apart, guys. It was a stupid idea from the beginning. It's like money can fix all problems. Like all, like any investment is going to be, you know, profitable if the Chinese do it. Don't you guys know that? That the Chinese are so brilliant that they can take any shitty investment that everybody has turned a blind eye to because of racism or because of um, exploitative reasons. They don't want to bring these emerging markets up. Everybody in the history of the freaking world has turned their back on this investment, but the Chinese are brilliant and they're just going to throw money at it and make it happen. Hell no, that's not going to work. And it's not working anywhere where the Belt and Road was tried. You can't just throw money at these things and become a profitable investment. They're losing money hand over fist. 
So the IMF, you know, the IMF is the one that comes in and um, I don't agree with all their policies. Let me say that right away. And well, Mitch points this out. Let me get back to Mitch. So um, I appreciate him being involved in this, in the, in the telegram. I mean, he has a lot of uh, good things to say, but um, he's saying, saying that the IMF has these um, actions that kind of tell when the crashes are going to happen on the timeline of the the ruler's agenda and i didn't quite understand it uh, then i said i agree i agree with that ideologically and promote laissez-faire as the most efficient and beneficial policy but there is no value in evaluating current the current world through that lens personally i don't think they can influence when and what okay then he says fair enough but he doesn't like the imf reform agenda and he goes into a few other things em countries not part of said industrial cartel and my initial point was that these monetary rescue plans or whatever the term should be tend to happen at times when billions of honest and diligent savers of sound assets around the world including in the poorest places would otherwise be rewarded for not playing the debt game instead they are punished so i i think this is a very good conversation to have because I think a lot of people, just like they have a wrong view of how the Fed prints money and how the uh, M2 money supply is actual money supply, something like that, that wrong belief leads them down the road to think there's a conspiracy with the Fed. There's a conspiracy with evil banksters. And I was one of these people for decades. Um, but believing that they're, that the IMF somehow keeps these countries down makes you believe that there is this, like there's evil people and there are evil people. Okay. But it's not all evil. So what I say is requiring reforms is a huge attack ver surface for corruption. 100% agree. But wouldn't you want to require things of people that were borrowing billions from you? You can't get a home loan usually without a job. Not saying I agree with specific policies, but having a requirement is logical. Then I go into, so we differ on emerging markets, state of nature, big time. So what I get, maybe I'm reading him wrong, but what I get from his comments is that if the IMF and these corrupt, evil Westerners got out of the way of the emerging markets, billions of honest and diligent savers would get ahead. But that is not the alternative, okay? That is not the alternative. The alternative to the IMF and to investments by rich countries into poor countries is no investment. So the emerging markets, they have, they have a state of nature, right? And that state of nature is not one of the rich countries. Maybe, like I said, technology changes things. Technology changed Europe and then North America became highly, highly productive. Great, the, the environment, the climate, everything worked out great. But it was after there were certain technological advances. Before those technological advances, it was mainly centered around the Mediterranean, the Near East, and the Far East. That was where a lot of the economic activity happened. Because of the level of technology that humans had interacted with na nature the natural environment and geography to lead to those places being the most productive. 
But once nature changed or once technology changed our relationship with nature, then the most productive places moved elsewhere and they moved to Europe and North America. So yes, if technology changes again, if we get this cold fusion or whatever they're, they're cooking up over there, um, our relationship with nature will change again and perhaps a new place will be product, most productive than North America. That's like the, the heartland of the most productive geography in the world. And that's why America is a quarter of the global GDP, why we have the best military, et cetera, et cetera, because of the geography. It's not a racist thing. You can put any people here and they would be equally as productive, okay? So um, I say, I think that these places are not poor because of exploitation, but because of the different endowments of nature. Temperate climates tend to have better soil, less bug problems for crops due to freezes in winter, etc. Places around navigable rivers, on trade routes, with close but varied populations, think of the Mediterranean Sea, have lower transportation costs and larger trade networks. Even a 1% difference over 100 years will lead to vastly different outcomes geographically. Nature's endowments are different in different places. Some places are tougher. Some places are better. Some places are very good. Differences are beautiful, though. I like diversity, like I say. Um, a diligent saver in a poor country will always be at a disadvantage to a diligent saver in a rich country. I remember a story told in Michael Beckley's Unrivaled book. This, And this is to paraphrase. Say Alice is a top one percenter in talent and ability. Her abilities will be much less productive in Ethiopia than in Switzerland, simply due to the environment. So you take the same person from here and put them in a more productive environment, they are going to be more productive. So I say, therefore, in a state of laissez-faire nature, the differences between rich and poor countries will grow. One of the big arguments, so I, I, I was talking about deflation when everyone was talking about inflation. I was talking about strong dollar when everyone was talking about the death of the dollar. And now people in Bitcoin seem to talk a lot about, you know, poor countries and how Bitcoin will help the poor countries. And it definitely will not. A more sound money will benefit the richest places most and the poorest places least. It will exacerbate the differences. It will even exacerbate the differences between the most able and the least able in a single society, in a single economy. So these, these poor countries, if we left them be in their state of nature, the differences between the rich and the poor countries would grow. And most likely, the poor countries would become poorer, at least initially. So it's not the white man that's keeping them down. It is, I mean, the, the living standards in emerging markets have skyrocketed over the last 50 years, despite the corruption of the IMF and other places, right? So when you take this IMF out of the equation, yes, it's a source of, of corruption, but you take the IMF out, you take away the access to good credit market, a good financial market access to credit, global credit. You take that away from poor countries and they they will regress. The economies won't be able to sustain it. One of the examples is Brazil. And I know we have, a I think, at least one guy 
from Brazil. Beto, I think if you're listening, let's see if you're in here. You're from Brazil. I think we might have a couple people. Yeah, there's Beto. Uh, we might have a couple people in the Telegram from South America. But Brazil is a high-cost producer in many things. So the soil isn't particularly good. They have to use a lot of fertilizer. They don't have a freezing cycle to kill off the pests, so they have to use pesticides. There's a lot more inputs needed for their agriculture. There's also a lot less, um, I mean, of course, they have the Amazon and the tributaries, but they're, to go from the population centers to the interior of the country, you have the Grand Escarpment, I believe it's called, where it's not, it's not easy to transport goods, as easy at least, to transport goods from interior Brazil to the coast. It's much more costly per mile or per kilometer, say, than it is in the interior of the United States to the coast. All of these little differences could be overcome efficiently in a globalized world where fertilizer and pesticides could flow around the world very easily and all the supply chains were interconnected and working fine. But in a deglobalized world where those supply chains are going to be more expensive, that means the inputs for Brazilian agriculture are going to be more expensive. That means the outputs are going to be more expensive, less competitive. So exports will suffer and on and on. There's also access to international credit markets. So um, large businesses in Brazil could access global credit and get dollar-based loans or whatever. They could access a global credit market. Well, when that global credit market starts putting up barriers, you know, a multipolar world, what that means is there isn't a global credit market. There isn't a glo global uh, all of these global things that we talk about today. A multipolar world means there's regional things. So, but regional uh, credit markets and things are smaller and they will have higher interest rates. So then you cut off cheap credit to Brazilian agriculture and Brazilian business. And so each of these little things, and it might only be a small change, 2%, 5% difference. But in the long run, if you go decade after decade, let's say you go two, three decades down and you changed at 5% a year, or you're at a disadvantage of 5% a year, it's going to add up to a massive change in outcome. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, okay? It's obviously bad if you think about the economy that you care most about, because it's probably not going to do the greatest, but it's also going to change the culture. You're going to regain some of your cultural identity. Because when you become a globalized society, you have access to credit. Everybody wants to be one culture, one global culture, and you lose your individual cultures around the world. So if your concern is for the next generation and raising your children right within your culture and your values, this could be a godsend. If you're concerned about losing your culture to Western globalism, like the Russians are, that's one of the biggest things that they talk about. So you're concerned about losing your culture. This would be godsend. Your standard of living is going to go down, but your culture is going to be saved. So anyway, I don't know how I got onto that, talking about IMF and differences, geopolitical differences and things, um, counterintuitive of the future. So that kind of fits into being counterintuitive about the future. 
not only are the markets acting counterintuitively, but the cultural aspects. And sometimes a decrease in standard of living can be good for your culture, can be good for your health, can be good for, um, you know, the health of society. If you lose a couple notches on your standard of living, I know that would help the U.S. quite a bit. It's crazy over here. <laughs> it's crazy, United States. Anyway, um, hope I didn't lose people on that. And it's stuff I talk about every couple of weeks. I probably go on a rant about that. But if you're new to the server and new to Twitter spaces and this podcast, then that would be a refresher for you or, or introduction for you. So, all right, let's open up the mic on Telegram. If I still have some people listening, go for it. I don't think Mitch was in here, but he'll might listen to it later all right going once going twice all right we'll cut it there for today guys thanks for joining me Anson Linder, bitcoin and markets check out bitcoin and and i will see you on the next one